Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. This week on the Riff Raff podcast, we're talking to KJ Howe, author of The Freedom Broker. We chat the importance of doing your research, how to keep your thriller fast paced and how to survive if you're kidnapped. Hi, it's KJ Howe, and I'm reading the second chapter of my book, The Freedom Broker. Quantum International Security Headquarters, London, England. November 28th, 3 p.m. Thea studied the doctors gathered around the conference room table for their pre-travel briefing. If she could prevent just one kidnapping through these educational sessions, then the effort was worthwhile. Every group was different, but she always tried to predict which individuals would fare best if they were kidnapped and tailor the talk to those who probably wouldn't cope as well. She'd been a response consultant, the industry term for kidnap negotiator, for seven years, long enough to understand how different personalities dealt with captivity. She smiled at the doctors, who were headed to Kulikan, the narco-crime capital in Sinoa, for relief work. Let's talk a little physiology, which should be right up your alley. Ordinarily, if you're confronted with a traumatic or threatening situation, your hypothalamus triggers a fight-or-flight reflex, which propels your body into a state of hyper-alertness, right? Blood surges to your extremities to prime the muscles for action. This makes you want to battle or bolt. But in a kidnapping, either of those actions would be counterproductive and potentially deadly. An updated research includes a third reaction, which is freezing. Also not good. The doc in the Zegna suit admired his manicured nails, emanated superiority and and boredom. But was all that a bravado masking his fear? He'd certainly be a perfect target. Mexican kidnappers would deflate his overpuffed ego with the customary welcome battering they used to dominate hostages, strip him of his Rolex and other trappings of wealth, and he'd be huddled in a fetal position, begging to go home. People with a titanium core were the ones who survived without permanent damage, not a cream puff center like his. When you're captive, you're stuck in an anxiety-ridden purgatory that might last hours, days, months, even years, with no control over your fate. To survive unbroken, you need to override the fight-or-flight reflex and avoid freezing. Instead, you must summon survival qualities like patience, optimism, and discipline. Thea indicated a fit middle-aged lady who sat near the front, her name written in block letters on her binder. For example, Annie would weather captivity well. She chooses sensible shoes over stilettos, which demonstrates practicality, and judging by the crossword puzzle tucked into her briefcase, she has the required mindfulness and patience needed to endure endless days of boredom and apprehension. Annie gave her a small smile. But I hope none of you will have to find out how you'd cope. We're here today to minimize your risk of being kidnapped. She paced the boardroom. Most abductions take place on weekday mornings, and 78% of kidnaps occur within 200 meters of the hostage's home or workplace. How can you protect yourself? Become a hard target. But what does that mean in practical terms? Don't take the same route to work every day. Maintain an unpredictable schedule and be aware of your surroundings. Look like you are alert and attentive. No texting or talking on the phone while in public. Instead, be aware of any suspicious vehicles or individuals lingering around. 
A man with a large handlebar mustache raised his hand. If someone's abducting me, should I fight back? Good question, and there's no perfect answer. The actual grab is a risky time for hostage takers. They'll immediately assert their dominance, expect to be blindfolded, beaten, drugged, or forced into a trunk. Remain calm and do what they say. Focus on survival. Remember that to them, you're a commodity, and they'll want to keep you healthy and alive so they'll receive payment. If you're in a public place and you feel like you can escape, it might be worth the risk. But if you're staring down the barrel of an Uzi on a deserted street, it's probably better to acquiesce. Don't be uncooperative or hostile towards your captors. Act like a brat and you can expect to be punished. These people do not mess around. Should we curl up like frightened schoolgirls? Zegna asked. The point is not to be difficult, asshole. If you become a hostage, your job changes. You'll need to be observant, taking note of your surroundings and the daily schedule of your captors. Also, it's vital to establish a routine of mental and physical exercise to keep focused and fit. You may be there for a while. I'd find a way to bust loose. From what I've read, most kidnappers are fairly unsophisticated. I mean, it's not like they're educated, Zegna said. You don't need a PhD to put a 9mm round in someone's head. If you attempt an escape, you better be damn sure you won't be recaptured. Otherwise, your captors are likely to make an example out of you, to keep everyone else obedient. Focus on the end game, which is your survival. Most kidnappings don't result in any loss of life or permanent injury, so it's usually smarter to find a way to endure the captivity and allow the experts to negotiate your release. Kidnap prevention, negotiation, and extraction were all services offered by Quantum. Sometimes companies hired QIS to mock kidnap their executives to demonstrate what would be involved in being a hostage, help them develop the skills needed to survive. Zegna could benefit from one of those classes. He was a type of client who ignored any and all advice. Hi, everyone. We're here today with KJ Howe, author of The Freedom Broker, and she just read from her book and we were just gripped and I was taking notes on what I'm going to do when I get captured, which is a possibility. (laughs) I mean, it's a slim one, to be fair. Um, You never know. But you never know. KJ, we are so excited. I mean, too excited, really, to have you here with us today. Um, I, I know that Amy is. I'm a massive Chris Ryan SAS nut. Um, so everything we've been talking, we've already been talking and we've kind of like bent your ear for the last half an hour. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> it's an honor to be here. Um, she's actually let you get a word in edges. Um, so your book, The Freedom Broker, is your first novel. Could you tell us a little bit about what it's about for anyone who's not read it? Sure. So um, I'm absolutely um, kind of captivated by kidnapping because I find it fascinating. It's a purgatory of sorts. You're alive but you're not really living. It's like your life is frozen in a bubble and you're dependent on your captors for absolutely everything that you need. And as a result, I wanted to explore that because a lot of crime writers you know, work on murders and, and such, but I think kidnapping in some ways can be worse than that in the sense that you wake up every day not knowing this is your last and you don't know if you'll ever make it home. And I just wanted to explore the psychological aspects of that um, subject matter. So I've created Um, a response consultant, which is another, that's the industry term for elite kidnap negotiator. And um, and her name is Thea Paris, and she has a very personal relationship with kidnapping because when she was eight years old, she watched as her 12-year-old brother was abducted. Now, he did come home, but he was never the same. And 20 years later, Thea Paris is a freedom broker, which is the 
the term I coined for response consultants a little sexier. And, um, and actually some of the response consultants are really like it and are using it, which is really nice. And as a result, um, she wanted to save other families the grief that hers, you know, suffered through with her brother's kidnapping. So she's become a freedom broker, but she has an extremely tough case ahead of her because her oil billionaire father is kidnapped. How and wow! I know. I know. <laughs> um, how realistic is that for? Because you spend. We'll, we'll come on to your research because me and Amy are just gobsmacked. But how is that a sort? Is that the sort of thing that could happen in real life? Does happen that oil? You know, tycoons are. A hundred percent. I mean, it used to be. It's very interesting. Kidnapping has really morphed and into a different thing. It used to be that high net worth individuals and executives that were posted abroad were at the highest risk for kidnapping. These days, um, terrorists have used um, kidnapping as a fundraising mechanism, and displaced military and police in third world countries are now using it as a way of putting food on the table for their families. So sadly, everyone is fair game, including missionaries, journalists. You know. Um, NGOs, you know, everyone really that travels. So definitely, of course, high net worth individuals have to take a lot of precaution because they're worth a lot of money. And you can get kidnap and ransom insurance up to $50 million. So you can imagine the payday if you've got a really big fish on the hook. Yeah. My God. Okay, so um, it'd be interesting to know about your journey to becoming a writer and why you kind of chose to take on this topic. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a former medical writer, and um, you know it's been a fascinating journey because um, you have to do a lot of research as a medical writer. And so I've always been huge into learning, and when I des- decided to learn about kidnapping, what I did was I attended a, k- a kidnap and ransom conference. And I was very, very fortunate that people opened up to me and started telling me about the kind of work they do. And I've had the great pleasure of actually getting to know several freedom brokers, as well as um, a few former hostages, psychiatrists who specializes in the captive mindset, um, as well as special forces soldiers who deliver ransoms or execute rescues. And rescues, of course, are always the last ditch effect because only one in five are usually successful. Wow. So I've just kind of, you know, immersed myself in, and also, of course, the insurance aspect of kidnap and ransom, which I'm happy to talk about later, is just fascinating. And so I immersed myself in that world and and tried to, you know, it was like a snowball effect. I met one person who introduced me to someone else and it kept going and my education continues to this day. Mm. And, and, and you find that the, the, you know, these big burly special forces guys, they're quite happy to open up to you. Yeah, and and surprisingly, a lot of them aren't big and burly. Um, it's, it's no, quite, don't no, shatter no, my no, illusion. No, no. Hang on. Okay. Well, hang on a second. Wait, wait, wait. They're all <laughs> handsome. Reset my mindset. Okay. <laughs> They're all handsome. But I'm just I'm saying seriously that there's a lot of gentlemen who are actually um, you know five six and just but whipcord strong, and it's really interesting because some of them are probably in some ways more effective or dangerous because you would not expect them to have these skills. You would not you know build you know if you see a massive guy, you immediately physical. You know, the threat of the, you know, the physicality of him. Whereas the smaller guys who are just as lethal just wanted to mention that. Yeah. 
So, yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm just transferred. That's not really hard it's, in my it's, head. It's a tough job I am researching. <laughs> yeah. So did you discover this kind of concept of a freedom broker and then think, oh, I like that this is a really interesting concept for a book? Is mm-hmm. that, was it, was that the first kind of, what was the first in to sure. beginning these kind of this research? Yeah. Well, growing up, I lived internationally. Uh, my father worked in telecommunications. And so uh, I lived in Africa, in Middle East, Caribbean, or Europe. And that kind of broad education, even though Toronto. Canada has always been home. Um, I lived all over the place, and in a lot of these places, there was always this overhanging threat. You know, can you would you be taken? I was always the minority, and that I think yeah. led to my fascination with kidnapping. Yeah. And when it came to writing a crime novel, I realized that there's only like you know like 30 people on Earth who are freedom brokers. You know, um, that full time. You know, you know, it's a very specific. How many did you say? Thirty. Thirty. Okay. It's it's a very yeah. unusual profession. It's something a lot of people have never heard of this group, right? So like what, what they do, yeah, exactly. But yeah. it's not not surprising at all. And so I felt like diving into this world would be something fresh and different. You know, um, when you come to crime writing, you know, there's so many um, books have been done on police and and private detectives and you know FBI agents and such. So I just really wanted to do something different. Yeah. And when you say you've immersed yourself in this world, you're not kidding. You have absolutely just gone, plunged straight in there. I mean, who knew that they had conferences, for one? Um, And you've met so many interesting people. Once, you know, could you tell us a little bit about your research? And also, why is it so important for writers to immerse themselves? You know, if they want to write beyond their own world, why is it so important for them to do extensive research? Sure, so I'll start with your second question. Um, I think it's critical to have authenticity in your book. I mean, let's face it, writers usually use the iceberg approach, which is having 10% or only the tip of the iceberg in your book. But when you have done your homework and you have that knowledge of 90% below the surface, the reader feels it. Mm -hmm. I'm a true believer. Um, as well, you know, I have such respect for what these people do that I wanted to get it right. And I've had several of them read my book just to make sure there's no errors that, you know, I've made. And they were very pleased with the end results. So that made me very happy, you know, because I don't want to get in trouble with these people. Is that something else that you would recommend that once you've written the book, send it back to the experts, yes. make them give them get your their amends and you know make sure it's accurate 110 percent. i think you know i've i always ask people um to read my novel um for accuracy for example and i have experts in every domain um there's an airplane um scene uh in my in book the freedom broker so i have two um expert pilots that have read it and advised me on it um i you know, I've ridden motorcycles myself, and I know people who are really avid motorcyclists, so I have that in there, and I talk about that, things we can do, you know. So I think definitely every aspect of the book can, you know. At one point, um, I have one of the characters, you know, um, open a hotel safe without having the combination. I researched that. You know, so I just feel strongly. Well, you must have so many excellent skills or, yeah. or like ideas. So if you were to be in one of these situations, you'd be like, well, I'm kind of a good person to have around. <laughs> I know how to break into a I mean, yeah, that would be I my know. first thought yeah. too. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've gotten to know um, uh, former hostage Peter Moore, and, mm-hmm. I, and I, I'm very honored actually to call him a friend. And Peter was held for almost a thousand days in Iraq, the longest held hostage there. And very sadly, he was taken with four British military gentlemen, and only Peter came back home. Wow. And, um, 
you know, Peter um, and I had dinner the other night and um, he was sharing that, um, you know, he's become a handcuff and lock pick expert. <laughs> and he said, darn, if I only had those skills before, you know, it would have been so incredibly helpful. But now when he does a lot, he does a lot of talks and training courses for people going overseas. He's very helpful to others. Yeah. And so he, he teaches them all how to pick handcuffs and stuff so that if they're ever in that situation, they can get out of the handcuffs. Mm. Brilliant, right? What an awesome skill. Yeah. 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 Um, what have you learned from him? Oh, it's that, I mean, you know, how we got. Yeah, I was going to say we could be here for hours. Yeah. But what, what, the thing that I would like to stress, though, is that it's about keeping your mind active and healthy, okay? For the first six months, Peter was blindfolded and handcuffed. And so he had to find a way to keep himself, you know, entertained or, or focused. So he used his handcuffed hands to snap and kill mosquitoes. And he would count how many he could do a day and, you know, try and beat his record. So like that kind of like a video game kind of thing in a sense, right? Trying to get a higher score. Mm -hmm. And then after he was chained to a radiator and he was, the blindfold was removed. And beside him on the wall, there was a huge number of cracks. And what he did was use the cracks to design an entire train system that he was able to replicate in his on paper when he came back home. And that kind of intense study, and some people say build your dream house, you know, brick by brick, room by room, so that something, because you're, they can have your body, but they cannot have your mind. Yeah. You need to have control of your mind. And I think that's really critical mm. and very interesting. So I guess that's my, my takeaway, in, you know, in a short thing, because I could go on for hours about Peter, is is to make sure that, that you always keep hope alive and that you keep your mind active and immediately set yourself a routine. Because human beings, as you probably know, you know, when you're in a structured routine, you, you benefit from that. Whereas when you just kind of go on vacation and you laze around all day, you think, where did that day go? I got nothing done. I don't feel very good about it. We thrive on routine. You must have the best writing routine of probably all the authors we've ever interviewed. Is that accurate? Well, I don't know about that. I, th I, I, I would disagree, actually, in the sense that like, I think people have to do whatever works for them. It's such a personal thing. I'm a morning writer because I love the fact that the subconscious is still alive when you wake up from your sleep and you're just kind of like a little dozy still. I feel like you're most creative at that time. Yeah. Other people, many of my friends, write like midnight to 3 a.m., and I'm just like, I would fall over into my mm. keyboard, but I, I just can't do that. But other people do. Yeah, I'm definitely a morning, a morning mm. I'm a, writer. I'm a, yeah. God, I don't know what I am. So how do you, um, how do you, <laughs> how do you, for other people that are kind of that are wanting to undertake a similar level of research mm. into a sensitive topic, how would you, um, how would you suggest that they kind of ingratiate themselves with these people that have been through so much so that they trust you mm -hmm. and so that they want to share their experiences? You have to be in it for the long term to start and you need to do your homework way before you meet these people. I read everything I could get my hands on about kidnapping before I met one soul. Because if you walk in there and ask basic questions that, that you will probably offend them because it's it, it obvious that you haven't taken the time to do your homework. I came up to them and, and I had, you know, a basic knowledge based on the reading I'd done and the, you know, research I'd done already and asked, tried to ask, you know, insightful questions that would show that I've done my research, but I want to go deeper. And I think that approach made them respect the fact that I wasn't, you know, just trying to get the easy way out, right? Just an interview and yeah. get all the information needed, but that I was really immersing myself in the world. Yeah. Not just trying to get the major sort of like... Mm -hmm like events kind of thing like the sort of but trying to actually understand the experience and stuff like that yes yeah, showing mm. more respect I suppose. Yeah. yeah and also I think <clears throat> that you know um, you want to come across as very professional 
Uh, you, I, I think one of the things that helped me is that I'm not a journalist at all. Never had done any, you know, journalism but I wanted to learn about their world. So they knew I wasn't going to ask questions about specific cases or try and take notes or try and expose anything. It was all about getting it right for my fictional character. And I think that also had an impact. So be very clear when you speak to them that you're not going to report this or put this in any nonfiction, you know, element, mm. right? Because, mm. I mean, you could do it in a nonfiction article later if you ask your permission, don't get me wrong. But when you're trying to, and if they agree, then that would be fine. But, um, it, when you start out, I would definitely stay away from that aspect. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great advice. Um. So in Thea, your main character, you've introduced a female into what conventionally is a male-dominated mm -hmm. genre. You were talking about kind of how um, it's a different kind of thing, seeing as you've had all these books about the F FBI agents and stuff. So, um, yeah. So you've introduced the, yeah a, a female character into conventionally male-dominated genre. Um. Could you talk a bit about these stereotypes kind of within the genre and about your experience with it? Absolutely. This is, this is a subject I delight in, you know. Um, we have, you know, Jason Bourne. We have James Bond. Don't we need a little estrogen in our lives? Oh, yes. Right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Amen, sister. Yeah, exactly. We have Wonder Woman now. Mm. We have, you know, Atomic Blonde coming yeah, yeah, out. Yeah, I'm so psyched I am so really psyched, good, yeah. too. And I just... Do I but, uh, Sarah, to interrupt, no. but it just even those kind of, they still, you know... The atomic blonde, the kind of, you know, you have to be, they have to they're still being, you know, depicted the by their the appearance. Yeah, you don't get like mm -hmm. Iron Man and, you know, Superman. He's just super. Do you know what I mean? I agree. Like, yeah. So I think there's still, you know, so, so far to go. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I gave my character Thea Paris a facial scar. Um, because, you know, there's a story behind it. If you read the book, you'll know. But as well, um, I felt, you know, that, you know, yeah, she's she's feminine and, and, you know, she's attractive, but she's rugged and she's proud of her scar. She's not ashamed of her scar. Um, she has type 1 diabetes and that is something that, you know, uh, she has to fight against because I think being in a male-dominated world as a woman, you have to be not, not just the same as the men, better <laughs> to, to get their respect. Mm -hmm. And so she has to work twice as hard. I really wanted to do a female, you know, strong character because that's what I think we all need as little girls looking up to. And I want to create, you know, like a, like a, someone that people can aspire to be. And I gave Thea the illness of diabetes as well because I want people to know if they have diabetes or any other illness, they're not defined by that di diagnosis. Yeah. That's not who they are. They are a wonderful person with many attributes that, and they can do whatever they want if they work hard. And um, I also feel that, um, you know, I've had a lot of men read my book because, of course, all the special forces gentlemen I know and, and, and many other male, you know, readers. And they all come back to me and really say it's been so fantastic to see a woman. And this is the balance, okay, that is super strong and doesn't need saving. Okay, mm -hmm. that's on one side. Okay. On the other side, I'm not unrealistic. I didn't create a comic book type character, superhero that is infallible. She's vulnerable. She can't take on five guys and win. It's not possible physically. So, you know, several of the Special Forces guys really love the fact that I, I had her fighting, but realistically fighting using her skills instead of, you know, her, because sometimes, of course, men do have superior physical strength. Yeah. So she can use her mind and, and, and her, you know, other skills to protect herself. So it was kind of a nice balance between being, you know, 
authentic, real. Yeah. Not just like, like I said, like, you know, superpowers and that can solve everything. That she can be in trouble. She can be fallible. Mm. And, and the diabetes, um, her condition, that, that comes from your medical background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a former medical writer and um, my grandfather also had diabetes. So it's a bit of a tribute to him. And as well, I, I just felt strongly, like I said, that, you know, um, a lot of editors, you know, frown upon main characters who have like physical ailments or something because they don't feel like, oh, this won't be heroic. And I'm like, no, it's the opposite. I think that when you have a character who has to deal with a chronic daily disease, yet they are able to succeed. It just makes me so happy. I mean, people like Holly Berry and Selma Hayek have type one diabetes. Um, you know, the author Anne Rice as well. Um, Jay Cutler, who's an NFL football hero from the U.S., has it. Many Olympic athletes have it. Like, so it really shows you that if you set your mind to it, you can overcome the yeah. illness. Lots of great messages as well, yeah. as well as being exciting. So but you have obviously assumed a pen name for the book. Mm-hmm. And how come you decided to do that mm-hmm. using your initials? Well, um, with it being a thriller, um, you, I wanted a punchy name, first of all, because and also um, very easy to spell, because when people are looking you up, like anyone listening here, you know, <laughs> how is not a, a difficult name to find, right? That's incredibly... I was called KJ a lot growing up, and as well, um, I was advised to do so by some people in the publishing industry, because there are some men out there who may not read um, a thriller by a female author, which I find really sad because I, I hope that my action scenes, given the research I've done, are strong and authentic. But um, there are people out there who, you know, who won't read female thriller authors. So I guess, you know, the publisher thought if you put KJ, but if you turn the book around, you will see my picture and, and, and hopefully notice that I'm a woman. Yeah. So, and then yeah. Yeah, their sort of like preconceptions will be shattered and yeah. you will have done your job. I hope so. Yeah, for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I, think we, I think a lot of women, we need to trailblaze. We need to show these men who are doubtful that actually, you know, women are more than capable of writing, you know, an action adventure thriller um, yeah. with gritty detail. Well, it's just the best way of doing it, isn't it? To actually do it and just say, here it is. And, it's good. and then to go, yeah, it's good. You know, rather than just being like, we can, we can, let us please. You just go ahead and you do it. And then it's, you know, it's out there yeah. in the world. I do find it really entertaining because I've been told by a few men that I write like a guy writer. <laughs> Which I'm like, wait a second. What does that mean exactly? So you're just saying that I'm good. Right, right. What you right. consider to be good. Right, yeah. right. Which is crazy, you it's know. It's like infuriating. Yeah. But also, I'm uh, glad so, that you're so like shattering backhand compliment. Kind of conceptions, definitely. Um, and, and talking of writing a thriller, obviously, you know, pace and tension and suspense are key elements. How do you keep those going throughout throughout your book? Yeah, that's a great. Uh, I actually do a talk on pacing um, when about craft of writing, which I really enjoy. And I think one of the key things several things one is leave a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter and keep the chapter short and punchy because i think it's really important to you know be one of those situations like if you notice james patterson is a brilliant man and he started out with his super short chapters and it's really wonderful people have busy lives they may have to put the book down and if you have a 50 page chapter they're probably going to not get through it but if you've got a couple pages you might tempt them into reading into the night. Oh, just one more. Oh just God, one yeah. more. It's that kind right? of Netflix thing, isn't it? Yes. That, you know, yeah, you have Jane. to find out what happens next. I remember Dean mm-hmm. Koontz used to do that. Like, just they'd all, all be just a couple of yeah. a couple of pages and you just end up reading like 10 and then you'd be like, ah, yeah. oh, it's the middle I need of the more. night. I yeah. need more. Um, and also with pacing, I think it's critical to know which parts to speed up and which parts to slow down. Now, and I mean this very seriously because pacing, everyone always thinks faster is better, but that is not always the case. 
For example, um, my mentor, David Morrell, who actually created Rambo. Um, the best thing we've ever heard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty lucky. Um, he, you know, did a, an incredible fight scene in the dark in one of his novels. Okay. And this fight scene lasts for several pages. It's profound. It's impactful. And it's in the dark, but the way he describes it, and he slows this fight scene down into this amazing description of what's happening. So all I can say is that's the kind of thing where it, it actually helped the pacing by slowing it down because you're so immersed in that dark room with, you know, fists coming at you, um, not seeing them. And in your sense, other senses are heightened that it was really powerful. At the same time, you need to know when to speed things up and when you don't have to talk about all the boring stuff in life. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like you don't talk about when your character, you know, eats and, and is sipping coffee and things like that. So you just keep it to the action and move forward. And I also recommend for authors that they use each scene um, to forward the novel in many different ways. It should enhance character. It should um, develop the plot and it should maybe introduce something new and exciting. So yeah. I could go on all days about pacing, yeah, but, but yeah, yeah. I hope that's yeah. a good snapshot. I feel yeah. like I really want to come to your pacing class. It sounds <laughs> yeah. <really amazing. laughs> um, so you've talked about how, you're, how you wrote this book to bring the issue of international kidnapping to the fore. There were some stats that I read in your press release mm-hmm. that were crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do, you, yeah, why do you feel so strongly about that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, that we're so lucky to have our freedom in life. I mean, I, I think we take that for granted every day. And, and given what I've been through with the research of the kidnapping, I, I really become profoundly grateful for my freedom. And so many people don't have it. There are people that have been in captivity for years and still are. And I think sometimes it helps with fiction, right, to bring an issue to the fore because you know, people read it for entertainment, but they learn something about it. And maybe um, more people will try to help. And there's um, a group called Hostage UK. If you go to, you know, their website, you can learn a lot more about if you want to donate or you want to help um, hostages abroad. And um, you write letters to the government, try, you know, try and encourage them to act. You know, it's very, it's a very challenging situation because both the U.S. and the U.K. do not want to negotiate with terrorists. And I completely understand that. At the same time, if it was your loved one who was taken hostage, would you not want to, you know, um, you know, get them home by any means possible? Yeah, you absolutely would. So it's a really tricky thing, and politically speaking, um, because you, on the surface, you know, the countries cannot negotiate, but the families often mortgage their entire homes mm-hmm. and their futures trying to get their family member back safely. So you, obviously, you've spoken about. Um you know, kind of representing a certain type of woman and representing kind of like flaws in people that are successful, kind of. And then you talk of obviously kidnapping is a huge problem. So it seems like you know you're you've put a lot into this book that shows that you're trying to do more than just entertain people. And do you do you think that's a key thing that fiction writers should look to be doing? Um, I think it's completely up to the <coughs> fiction writer. I certainly don't judge anyone for because I think we all have to write the novel that resonates with us. You know, at the same time, um, my passion is for books where I'm entertained and educated. Yeah. I want to leave it. I want to put that book down and think, wow, I really learned something interesting about X, whatever it may be, and feel enriched. Because if you spend eight hours, let's say, right, reading a book, um, that's an investment of time. And I think the payoff should be education or emotional resonance. You know, you want to feel like those characters stay with you longer. Mm. So that's the reason why. Yeah. And, and you haven't just brought international kidnapping to everyone's attention, which, I mean, in itself is 
it's a pretty good day's work. Um, you are also the executive director of Thrillfest, mm-hmm. um, which has just been, we just missed it. It was in July, wasn't it? That's right. Um, we, damn it, we just missed it this year. Um, could you tell us a little bit about it, how you got involved and can we come, basically? Yes, you Fine. can come. Yes. That's, how about that first off? I would be absolutely delighted if you joined us next oh, year. I'm and there. actually, next year, I don't know if you guys are Game of Thrones it, fans. George R.R. R. Martin is But George R.R. Martin will be yeah. our See, I say that guest. very exciting, excitedly. I'm not a massive fan. My mum and my brothers, like, it's all they will talk about. I'm like, I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there's a dragon in it, I think. Oh, but I mean, but even, even I know that George R.R. R. Martin is Huge. a pretty a big, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're extremely fortunate to be having him as our Thriller Master, which is our Lifetime Achievement Award. And well, we had what a title, isn't it great? Yeah. Thriller Master, yeah. Thriller Master, something to aim for. Yeah. Um, so uh, we had Lee Child as our this year's Thriller oh, wow. Master. Oh, I mean, yeah, incredible, talented gentleman um, mm. and wonderful guy. And so um, Thriller Fest is a thousand thriller enthusiasts, authors, you know, aspiring authors, and pub- and publishing people come to New York City, and the Grand Hyatt in Manhattan. And it is such fun because it's like you're surrounded by people who are so enthusiastic about the same things as you are. And we do everything from a full day at the FBI where authors can learn about how the FBI works. I bring in um, Secret Service, um, U.S. Marshals, you know, um, all sorts of blood spatter ag- um, experts, um, forensic I mean, dentists. <laughs> you, you name That's a job title, isn't it? I'm a yeah, blood, blood spatter, spatter expert. expert. Yeah. Oh, like Dexter, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so we bring a whole bunch of experts in. We have an, an incredible um, teaching, you know, sessions for aspiring authors. So if you want to learn how to write, come to Thriller Fest. You'll learn from people like Lee Child and, and, and Steve Barry and all top writers. And then um, we have this thing called Pitch Fest. And I affectionately call it the zoo because over <laughs> 250 people line up to do speed dating in a sense with agents and they're trying to get their dream agent and they pitch their book and, and they have a couple of minutes to interact. And we also have um, a banquet where we award the thriller awards, you know, for the best novel of the year, that kind of thing. And um, we also have spotlight interviews and, um, you know, special guests. So it's just, it's, it's an action packed week every July and next year is July 10 to 14. Wow, it sounds great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like so much fun because I assumed it would be just the authors, but then they're learning no. from all of the experts in the field. Like, yeah. That's yeah. interesting to people that even don't want to write. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, you're, and you're enabling authors to meet agents as well, which yeah. is such a huge, you know, what a huge mm-hmm. thing to be doing. Well, the International Thriller Writers, which is the umbrella organization in charge of Thriller Fest, okay, um, our whole mandate is to support thriller writers. That's what our whole thing is. Just every single step we take is to support the thriller community. And um, I started volunteering at the very first one, and uh, somehow I ended up, you know, taking over as executive director. So I'm not surprised. I have to say, having spoken to you for the last forty-five minutes, I'm not surprised. I think you could take over the world. <laughs> um, so, what, so just you know, obviously, thriller, the thrillers are your kind of your area. So, why why do you think it is that thrillers are such a popular and enduring genre? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I that's a great. I mean, I think crime crime TV crime fiction. Yeah. We're all so passionate about it. Um, I kind of feel that there's an emotion attached to each genre. Okay. So I see that when people love science fiction or fantasy, they love the, the feeling of wonder, you know, isn't that incredible? That could that happen? You know, that maybe our friend here, Rosie doesn't really have that as much as other ones because, um, it's because of lack of game of Thrones yeah, interest. Yeah. Right. That said, she's my kind of girl because excitement and adrenaline are paired with thrillers. 
So maybe that's what really rocks you, right? I think anyone who knows me would say yeah. that I am rocked and I'm by the, adrenaline. <laughs> and I'm the same kind of girl. I'm totally the same. And so, so that's my passion is thrillers. For example, a lot of people who like romance might focus on hope. There's hope for love, yeah, yeah. hope for commitment and feeling. Whereas mysteries, which I see as very different but similar, okay? Uh, people who love mysteries tend to be puzzle solvers, logical people who want to figure it out. And it's very different than thrillers, which is excitement and adrenaline, and I want to go on the wildest ride possible. Yeah. So that's the way I see it. It's and an interesting way yeah. of looking at it. I like mm-hmm. that, like mm-hmm. thinking about what's the kind of like, because you know, the, I, for me, like having a mystery, I, just spending my whole time thinking and wondering, is fine every once in a blue moon, but it wouldn't be my specific genre yes. that I'd want to read all the time. Whereas, like, I like to be, I like to laugh or something. But mm. yeah, it's interesting to think See, of it in exactly. that way. And yeah. I really do think our personalities dictate what we we're drawn to. Yeah. Would yeah. you Would you try out any other genres? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I would. I, I I really love you know family sagas. Okay. You know, I wouldn't mind writing one of those. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Mm. Um, I, I I don't think science fiction is just not my thing. Um, I like cutting edge medicine. Don't get me wrong, but but that's like you know like really like space and that that just wouldn't appeal to me as much um i would say that uh i don't know i would i would definitely write like also a, a chick book you know like that something fun yeah um i have lots of ideas but but for now i'm going to stick to the series because yeah. it, time is of the essence right yeah so maybe like tell us a little, if you can tell us a little more about the series that would be a good because like sure. obviously you've got so much material but how so how many books are, kind of, are planned for the series wow are they, are well, they all with Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I, I really believe that, you know, readers enjoy series because they get attached to a group of characters and they want to see them in different situations. And it's kind of comforting because you have a little bit of the similar and familiar, right, with the series because the same characters, but you get enough difference because it's a completely different story in a different environment and different new peop- new characters come into each book. So I'm hoping to take Thea and her quantum international security team throughout different books Freedom Broker's done and it's out. Um, Skyjack is my next year's book. It's finished. I'm just doing some edits. Cool. And mm-hmm. I bet you can tell by the title what it's about. Yeah. Um, Skyjacking. Hijacking you know, yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I was like, uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you say it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Right? I like that concept. Yeah. Yeah. So, Sorry, a bit slow this not morning. Not at all. Not at all. Um, but so that that's going to be a lot of fun to write, like, you know, um, read because you'll learn a lot about airplane safety in that one. And, uh, and what to do if that should happen on the exactly. plane. Exactly. So you'll be but Is there anything you can do? I mean, don't you just... Oh, you have to read Skyjack. I will. Exactly. Yeah. Don't want to ruin it for everyone. And, um, and then from there, I'm going to do the third book, which I'm just starting now and I'm very excited about, is about um, journalists in war zones. And they usually travel with a security person. And I've had the great pleasure of getting to know a gentleman named Ken Perry, who has become a really good friend and also an expert on guarding journalists in war zones. So I'm going to have um, a character that's a security expert, and he's going to be Thea's ex-boyfriend, which layers in a little intrigue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's taken with some journalists in Jordan, and the story will go from there. Oh. Wow. My boyfriend was like, let's go on holiday to Jordan. <laughs> but I think we need to take Ken with us. Yeah. <laughs> but I am a journalist, so technically I could go into a war zone. And, and, there you go. You know, after... We're reenacting the third book right here and now. Right here and right now. I just kind of want to ask, well, I think we need to wrap yeah, up. I just want to ask you one more question. Sure. So you obviously like have, you know, to, be, to have all these ideas and to have kind of, and to be, this one's just come out, the next one's done, the next one's lined up, like, you know that's kind of a writer's dream to have to have that much inspiration and to be that kind of focused on 
you know, being as prolific as, you know, you're on the right track. So, like, kind of any kind of tips for people that are, yeah, any kind of tips. For writers. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, I would say, you know, write every day and embrace criticism from credible sources. Um, I, you know, had a lot to learn and I still have a lot to learn. I think that's what's key about writing. You can hopefully keep growing as a writer and becoming more proficient at it. And the only way you can do that is to put your ego aside and say to someone, tell me what's wrong. How do I get better? And I've been very lucky to have some incredible mentors. You know, people like I, I studied with Lee Child in um, at a retreat in the Bahamas. And wow. that was incredibly inspiring because he is a brilliant man. And he was able to take, you know, what I was doing and explain where I was going wrong. I've also had phenomenal editors at Headline and um, Quirkus, you know, uh, in the U.S. and U.K. And they've helped me a great deal as well. So, I mean, just, you know, it's really about... Um, realizing that this is not a destination, it's a journey, and you, every day you can just get better. Mm. Cool. No. And just before we started recording, KJ, you asked Amy and I quite an yes. interesting question. Yes. <laughs> should, we, should we go through that now? I would be honored and delighted. <laughs> okay, so I had for these lovely ladies, I wanted to know if they were going to be kidnapped and they could only take one item with them, what would it be? And also, you, you at home, please think about you know what it is you might want to take with you if you were kidnapped. Amy? Well, I I went for a weapon. Which, uh, <laughs> My kind of girl. Yeah, I was straight away with the gun, even though I've never used a gun and like would be terrified to use one. So, uh, but um, I was quickly informed that that's probably the worst thing to have because if that you know if 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 you if you get caught with it, they'll punish you. So maybe I shouldn't have gone for the violent option. Gone so unless yeah. unless you're really well. I don't know if you, if you're that good, you can take. The five of them out right at once. They're with your Uzi. Sounds maybe. like something I could do. Right, I know? think so. I'm yeah. thinking. Nah, I like. I like. Yeah. Your, I like your attitude. Yeah. And, uh, I definitely think. But yeah, it's tricky with with weapons because they can be used against you as well. Keep that in mind. Yeah. A lot of people um, always say I carry a knife, but unless you're really proficient with a knife, it's actually a very dangerous weapon to have because people can. Anyone that's talented with knife fighting take it away from you. I've done some combat training in, in the Phoenix Desert and. Um, to learn about, you know, this fighting and just to be authentic about it. And um, I studied with this guy who's a knife guru and um, it was unbelievable what he would do. Like two seconds, he had the knife. Like it was just unbelievable. So something to think about. Yeah. It's an even better job description. Yeah. Knife guru. Knife guru. <laughs> yes. you, just, you trained in some hand-to-hand combat. Mm-hmm. My word. It was fun. Yeah, it sounds fun. I'll tell you what can't be used against you. And that's a photograph of your family. Which Aww, is what I went for. <laughs> I yeah, because we've you know we've talked. I've I've read and heard about people who you know have that, and it's the thing that keeps them going. And so I'm in it for the long haul and the mental battle. I think that was a profoundly good choice because hope. Did you hear that, Amy? Profoundly good choice. I it. Thank you very much. No, <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah, she's got a weapon. Be careful. But you want to keep hope alive at all times. That is the thing that often um, makes is a difference between someone coming home and someone not coming home is hope. And you never, you have to keep that image in your head. And that's what almost every hostage comes home and says is that hope kept me alive. So oh. that, that's the message. What a valuable keep the hope alive. alive. Keep the hope and alive. You're writing and in a hostage situation. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, KJ Houghton, our absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Lovely to The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.